Thank you so much, uh, man. I'm so encouraged by your prayers, and uh, I feel like I, I can I can go now. I'm I'm already encouraged, but uh, I've been asked to uh, share God's word with you. So I'm excited to do that, and hopefully you'll be encouraged uh, by hearing God's word as well. If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn to Psalm 95. And if you're on Zoom, I see several Zoom uh, screens here, but uh, if you don't mind turning your uh, video on, uh, that, that would that would be helpful for me. But uh, if not, that's fine too. But thank you. <laughs> um, Psalm 95. Uh, I'm going to read, uh, starting at verse 1, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. This is God's word. We pray once again for us. Father in heaven, these are your precious and living words. We ask that you would speak to us, encourage our hearts, strengthen our faith, that through us, your greatness and your grace may be known to others around us. Would you encourage King's Cross by your presence here, by your spirit, as you speak to us. We ask this for your glory and for your name's sake. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a church, we're going through Exodus at the moment on Sundays, and one of the things we see in Exodus again and again is how, how often God's people grumbled and complained uh, about their situation. They, they had been rescued by God, and they saw how powerful 
the Lord is in rescuing them. So they had seen so many wonderful ex expressions and display of God's mighty power, awesome display of his power. But despite seeing that, they grumbled and complained about lack of water, lack of food, and so on. And I've also been, and perhaps because we're going through Exodus, I've also been noticing that there's a lot of grumbling and complaining going on around me and also in my own heart, especially through this COVID season. We grumble that the government is not doing a good job making our lives better. We complain about our spouse, uh, hopefully not, not often, only sometimes, but or we, we complain about kids or boss or coworker. Um, we grumble that despite working hard, we just don't seem to have enough compared to others who are enjoying more financial freedoms. We compare our lives with people around us and grumble that, that we don't have what they have. Grumbling seems, seems like it's almost automatic in natural human response to adverse circumstance. And the Bible traces the root of our grumbling and complaining to our unbelief. And in our grumbling and complaining, we, we are essentially saying to God, God, you are not good to me. And I don't trust you. And instead of turning to God and adverse circumstance or difficult situation, instead of turning to God, unbelief turns us away from God to other things or people to meet our needs and fix our circumstance. But this psalm recalls the history of God's people, history of Israel, and, and this psalm warns us about the danger of unbelief and, and danger of grumbling and complaining and provides an alternative, alternative to grumbling and complaining. And this psalm lifts us out of the path of grumbling and sets us on the right path. And so we're going to look at three things from this psalm, Psalm 95, that will help us navigate through, through our life full of things that we can complain about. So we're going to look at three things, a command, a reason, and a warning. A command, a reason, and a warning. Now let's look at the first one, uh, a command. If I had to summarize the overarching command in Psalm 95, it would be this, worship the Lord. That's the overarching command that this psalm uh, gives to us, God's word gives to us. Psalm 95 describes what worship looks like. It tells us that worship is something that, that engages our entire being, mind, emotions, and, and our body. Worship is something that engages our entire being. Uh, verse, if you look through verses 1 and 2, words like sing and thanksgiving and songs of praise, these uh, describe activities that require us to use our mind to think about what we're saying to God. And phrases like, let us make a joyful noise. Uh, it happens twice. Uh, joyful noise tells us that joy, emotion of joy in, is in view. Thanksgiving implies gratefulness. The act of bowing down, verse 6, implies reverence. So our emotions are also engaged in worship. So mind, emotion, emotions, and our bodies are engaged as well. Singing and make, making joyful noise. Uh, these, these activities involve using our breath and voices 
bowing down, kneeling, and things like that. Our bodies are engaged as well. And so, so worship that's described here engages the entire being, mind, emotions, and body. Now, every, every summer uh, in Japan, there's a huge high school baseball tournament, and best teams from all over Japan get together once a year uh, to have this tournament. And, and a few years ago, my own high school went to this, this tournament and went all the way to the championship game, and it was so exciting for us to, to watch it together. And so this was a championship game, uh, number one team in Japan. Um, and the game, so, sorry, I know you guys, you guys probably don't play a lot of baseball in Australia, probably cricket is, is your sport, but uh, excuse my baseball reference. So it was, it was at the, uh, the last inning, the game was tied at six to six, at top of the ninth, uh, ninth in- inning is the last inning. So the game is almost over and the game was tied at six and six. And the pitcher for my, my high school team, uh, he wasn't hitting particularly well all, all through the tournament. And so he, uh, he gets up to the batter box and the first pitch, he swings a bat, hits a home run, and everybody was on their feet, raising arms, cheering for him. And it was so exciting to both arm raise. I was, I was like, yeah. Now, my team ended up winning the championship. And so I was so excited and I was grateful uh, to, to, to witness that uh, historic game. And so my mind, emotions, body, everything was engaged in that uh, act of... Uh, worshiping now if we can get that excited about a baseball game how much more should we be excited engaged engage our entire selves entire being in the worship of god in worship we respond with our entire being to the greatness of god as he reveals himself to us his character and his works to us Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way, worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to God in a way that engages your whole being. Ascribing ultimate value to God that engages our whole being. Worship is seeing what God is worth. Worship is seeing what God is worth and responding with our whole being. Worship starts with God, and and as he reveals himself to us, the only appropriate response is worship, is joyful and reverent worship. So that's the command in Psalm 95, but what's the reason for this command? Let's look at the reason. The reason is this, because God is great. And his greatness, as described by Psalm 95, it's displayed in two ways. First, God's greatness is displayed in his power and authority. Look at uh, verses 3 through 5 again. For, so that's the reason, worship the Lord. For, because the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and he, his hands form the dry land. Now, in Japan, if I say I believe that God created everything, people usually respond uh, with this belief, even though on the outside they're mostly polite. But if I say 
I believe God created everything that we see and things that we, we can't even see. Uh, people, people are just shocked that I would believe such a thing. Their worldview says science tells us how everything came into being. And that's the narrative. That's the story that most of the educational institutions have embraced and taught uh, as facts. But as scientific discoveries have been made, we now know that there are over 200 parameters um, or conditions that need to be met in order for a planet like Earth to support uh, the existence of life. Um, now, I read it, uh, so uh, you can fact check with um, your friend Ant, uh, who's a science teacher, I believe. Um, but there are over 200 parameters and conditions that need to be met in order for Earth to sustain life. Things like it has to be a right, just the right distance from a star like the sun and to, to, to sustain the right temperature to sustain life or having bigger planets nearby to draw away asteroids uh, from the earth and things like that. There are over 200 conditions that need to be perfectly be met in order for earth, a planet like earth to sustain life. And as these discoveries were made, some, some scientists began to think this didn't happen by chance and got uh, a guy named Fred Hoyle, uh, who was an astronomer who coined this uh, term Big Bang uh, he, he was an atheist, but he later wrote this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as with chemistry and biology. The number one calculates from the facts seems to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Now this super intellect has a name the Lord. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Everything exists because God made it. And, and he holds everything in his hands and rules over them as king. So God's greatness is displayed uh, first in his power and authority to, to make everything and to rule over everything. And secondly, God's greatness is also displayed in his love and care for his people. Verses six and seven, it says, Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for, so here's the reason, he is our God and we are his people. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So, the psalmist uses the imagery of sheep and shepherd to describe the relationship between God and his people. Now, shepherds were people who protected the sheep from dangers and led them to safe pastures to give them food and water that they, they needed. And that's exactly what God did for the people of Israel in the wilderness. Now, if you remember, he fed them with manna, when there, were, when there was no food, he gave them water to drink and provided them with everything that they needed in their time in the wilderness. For 40 years, God faithfully led them, provided for them, protect them protected them from danger. He was their shepherd. He did all of that despite the fact 
that his people repeatedly grumbled and, and complained and displayed their unbelief persistently. Now, there's an interesting episode in Exodus chapter 17 when people grumbled because there was no water, uh, which this, this psalm, Psalm 95, actually references later on uh, in uh, verse, verse 8. Uh, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and on the day at Massa in the wilderness. So this psalm references back to Exodus chapter 17. It's an interesting episode. Uh, when people grumbled, uh, what happened was there was no water, so people grumbled and complained to Moses. And when people grumbled and complained, the Lord said to Moses to, to strike the rock on which the Lord himself is standing. Now, this is interesting. The Lord was standing on this rock, and he told Moses to strike this rock that, that, that he, was, he was standing on. And he told, told Moses to strike this rock with the staff that Moses used to bring God's judgment on Egypt. And when Moses did that, water came out for people to drink. Now, what, what we see here is that the rod of God's judgment, Moses' staff, which represented God's judgment against Egypt and God's judgment against sin, the rod of God's judgment strikes the rock on which God is standing. It's almost as if God is saying, God himself, I myself will take the judgment that people deserve for their persistent unbelief and water of God's blessing flowed out to quench their thirst. That is the kind of loving and gracious shepherd God is. And but for us, there is more. In the New Testament, Paul says, referring to that passage, uh, the, the rock that was struck, Paul says that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, verse 4. The rod of God's judgment struck Jesus instead of us. He is the rock that bore the punishment that was due us for our unbelief, for our complaining, for our grumbling. And from that rock flow the living water that quenches our thirst. Jesus in John chapter seven, verses uh, 37, 38, it says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he fulfilled that promise by giving us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the living water that quenches our deepest longings as he helps us, as the Holy Spirit helps us see how gracious, how loving, how awesome, and how beautiful Jesus is. When the Spirit does that, our deepest thirsts, deepest hunger is satisfied and quenched. Some of you may know a lady by the name Johnny Erickson Tada. She's a Christian author, conference speaker. She was in a diving accident at age 18 and became a quadriplegic. And so she was paralyzed from neck down. And she's, she has spent decades in a wheelchair. And someone who saw her at a conference uh, described how Johnny, quote unquote, danced during worship, moving her wheelchair side to side, back and forth in circles uh, to the music. And he writes this, 
What kind of God is this who can inspire such freedom and joy in one who, from a human point of view, would appear to have every reason to hate him? What kind of God is this who can evoke such confidence and trust in a person who is so horribly disabled? What kind of God is this who has the qualities and characteristics and attributes and beauty and glory that he can be found worthy of the praise and gratitude and dancing of a woman who's spent the last 38 years in a wheelchair? Wow. Now that's some God. His name is Jesus. He's the only one who has the qualities and characteristics and attributes and beauty and glory that can evoke our confidence and our trust and worship no matter how bad things can get in our lives. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and we are his, he says. That's why we worship him. He is great in his power and authority, and, but he's also great. He's even greater in his love and care for his people. He is our shepherd. He are the people of his passion. That's why we worship him. So command a reason. And finally, uh, a warning. This psalm ends with the warning, uh, starting at the end of verse 7, all the way to the end of verse 11. Uh, roughly half of this psalm, Psalm 95, is a warning. Now, it's a strange way to end an otherwise upbeat psalm. The first half of the psalm, it seems very upbeat. But then almost half of the psalm is, uh, is a warning, a strange way to end this psalm. This psalm recounts Israel's wilderness wandering in verse 8. And, and the author of this psalm wants us to remember their mistake, remember what happened, and learn from that experience. Uh, verse 8 mentions two places, as I mentioned before, Meribah and Massa in the wilderness. What happened in these places was that people grumbled and complained about not finding water to drink. And despite seeing God do amazing things and powerful things to rescue them out of Egypt, they did not turn to God to provide water to quench their thirst. Instead, they grumbled and thought that they were, they were far better off in, in Egypt. They were looking back to Egypt and said, we had, it, we had it good back then. Look what we got now. Forgetting the fact that they were slaves in Egypt. They were, they were slaves and had a hard time. But looking back, they, were, they, they were grumbled and thought that they were better off in Egypt. Meribah and Massa are simply uh, just a couple of examples of the kind of grumbling that, that revealed people's persistent unbelief and doubting of God's goodness to them, which, which ultimately resulted in their failure to enter the promised land. God said in verse 11, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now entering God's rest for them, for the people of Israel, was entering uh, the promised land. Um, to be safe from enemies and, and have peace and prosperity. <clears throat> the psalmist is using their example to say, if you have a grumbling and complaining heart, if you have expressions and display of unbelief, the psalmist is saying, watch out. 
you could fail to enter the promised land as well. But, but did you notice that it says in uh, verse end of verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He says today. And he, he's writing, this psalmist is writing after God's people had already entered the promised land and says to God's people, uh, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It means that he's saying the physical rest from enemies in the promised land was meant to point to a deeper rest that God has for his people to enter that these people that he's writing to could potentially miss. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Learn from our forefathers' mistakes. You can still miss this deeper rest that God has for us. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 make, make it clear that this passage teaches us that a deeper spiritual rest is available to us. And for us, entering God's rest means enjoying peace and rest from our enemies Enemies called sin and Satan and death and, and this spiritual rest that God has for us, we enter by believing the gospel. Those in the wilderness with grumbling hearts said, look at what, what they have in Egypt and look what we have. We have no water, no food. Is God really for us or not? They didn't trust God's goodness and love though they had seen God's salvation, God do amazing things for them. They did not trust God's goodness to them, and they failed to enter God's rest. And in the same way, this psalm warns us that, that we could also miss entering God's rest if we persistently refuse to listen and believe God's love and goodness offered to us in, in, in the gospel. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In order for us to, to believe God's love for us, believe that God is good to us, believe that he has our best interests at heart, and, and, and he, he will lead and guide us in the wilderness. In order for us to believe that and enter God's rest, we must hear God's voice today if you hear his voice. So we must hear God's voice assuring us of his love and goodness to us in the gospel. But but. The reality is there are competing voices that hinder us from hearing God's voice. The voice of the enemy tells us that God is withholding something good. God is withholding good things from us. And we need to look elsewhere to find happiness for ourselves and security for ourselves and provision for ourselves. Just like the enemy did to Adam and Eve in the garden. His voice speaks to us. And voices of our culture tell, tell us, if you want to be happy, and if you want to be satisfied, you need more money, better physical appearance, better success, better this and that in your life. And when we are constantly hearing these voices and, and when we constantly live surrounded by people who are listening to these voices and following these voices, it's easy for us to get sucked in as well, isn't it? My family moved to uh, Tokyo seven and a half years ago and we knew that housing was very expensive. 
in Tokyo. So we knew that we probably couldn't afford to buy anything. And we were, we were probably going to be renters for the rest of our lives. And we, we were prepared for that. So we thought. We're still renting after seven and a half years, but many of our friends in our community are um, had either they bought the place and, and some, some of our friends are even buying newer apartment to move into. And when I, when I think about that, sometimes I, I, I feel this tinge of, oh, I wish we could do that. Comparison leads to envy and envy leads to subtle complaining that leads to doubting God's goodness. If I listen to the wrong voices long enough, I will start saying, look at what they have and look what I've got. God, do you care? Just like the people in the wilderness, if we listen to the wrong voices long enough, we will start saying things like that. What I need to hear, what we all need to hear is not the voices of the culture around me or the voices of comparison and complaining within me, but what I need to hear is the voice of my shepherd, good shepherd that leads me to worship him. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for my sheep. I'm the rock of your salvation that was struck with the rod of judgment to give you the living water that quenched your thirst again and again. Come to me and, and come to me and drink. Jesus says, I'm the true bread that came down from heaven to feed you in the wilderness, to satisfy your deepest hunger of your soul. This is how much I love you. Put your trust in me. Come to me and eat. Come to me and drink. Come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. Only when we listen to his voice by the power of the Spirit and, and only when we can see Jesus for who he truly is to us, only when that happens can we be free from other voices and, and free from comparison and free from envy and free from doubting and grumbling. And, and only, only then we can be free to trust his love and worship our, our good shepherd. So let me ask you, what are the voices that you are listening to? Can you identify the voices that, that leads you to grumbling and, and com comparison? And can you identify the voices that leads you to doubting God's goodness? Now, I want you to take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to show you, to search your heart. I want you to take a moment right now to do that. And ask the Spirit to help you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd affirming his love for you. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you experience his tender smile for you. He is our shepherd. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. He loves us 
cares for us. So let's ask the Spirit to help us hear His voice, affirming His love and care for us. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. May we hear His voice speaking to us, and may we trust His goodness and His love to us and His care for us and worship Him, even when we go through the wilderness in our lives, even when we look around, other people are prosperous, even when we are experiencing the life in the wilderness, even then, may we hear his voice, trust his goodness and his love for us, so that through us, those around us would also come to know and worship our great Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>